Hi everyone. I'm so glad that we get to be together in this way this morning to look into God's Word. We're continuing with our sermon series on spiritual disciplines, habits for wholeness. And today might be the last sermon in our series. There are a couple of other disciplines I might like us to look at, um, but whether this is the last sermon or not, it's a, it's a really great summary of the series that we've looked at. Uh, we've been looking at Habits for Wholeness since February this year. We've covered a fair bit of ground. Uh, we had three introductory sermons where we spoke about the nature and the purpose of spiritual disciplines. And then we spent several weeks looking at particular spiritual habits that help us to grow in the Christian life. Uh, habits such as solitude and silence, Bible intake, prayer, fasting, evangelism, stewardship, giving and worship. As I say, we may look at just one or two more, but today's message, I think, is really important for us uh, where we find ourselves as a congregation at the moment. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading in the book of Psalms and came across these interesting words from Psalm 92, which I'd never noticed before. Uh, this isn't our main reading for today, but let me read the verses to you. Psalm 92, verses 12 to 14. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. When I read that, I immediately thought of our classic congregation. Uh, for those of you who may be visitors, the Pinelands Baptist Church Classic Congregation, of which I'm a proud member, probably has an average age of about 60 and above. I myself am a mere child of 49 years. Actually, seeing as at the moment the South African government are vaccinating people aged 60 and above, this is the first time in my life that I've ever wished to be 60 years of age. But coming back to the point, they will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. And today I want to ask the question, how do we remain evergreen? How do we make sure that there is not a winter period in our lives where we are old and dry and shriveled and barren? Well, maybe we're shriveled on the outside, but our souls are not shriveled. We still have something to give. Our actions count for something. Our giving makes a difference. Our words bring healing and life. How do we live a life like that? I think it's very important to point out that shriveled soul syndrome is not something that is restricted to old age. There are people of all ages who live lives that are barren and dry and shriveled. How do we avoid a life like that? Well, whether we're old or young this morning, we're in the middle of winter in Cape Town. We're in a third wave of COVID-19. We are having to suspend our services for the next couple of months. And in this time, how do we flourish and bear fruit and stay fresh and evergreen? Well, the answer to that question is found in another psalm, 
in the very first psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. This is our reading for today. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. There's so much to look at in the psalm, but I'd like us to look at the psalm under three main headings. Firstly, the picture of this evergreen life. Secondly, the path to this evergreen life. And thirdly, the prosperity that comes from this evergreen life. Firstly, the picture of an evergreen life that this psalm paints for us. Right in the middle of the psalm, there is a description of the kind of life that I wish for myself. All of us, I think, want to live a life that is significant and meaningful, that makes a difference, that counts for something. Well, see if this description resonates with you. Have a look again at verse 3. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And there are a couple of things here. This picture describes purpose and meaning. The description is not of a tree out in a forest or woodland somewhere. This is a tree that is planted. Secondly, the picture speaks about stability and steadfastness immovability, not inflexibility, like an old man who is stuck in his ways and cannot change, but rather someone who is dependable, trustworthy, stable, mature, not running after every new flight or fancy. Think of those giant redwood trees that you get in the United States. Thirdly, it's a picture of fruitfulness, which yields its fruit in season. In other words, this is a person who has something good to give. Their lives are an example. When they speak, they speak wisdom. They live lives that seek to serve others, help others, be a blessing to others. And fourthly, this is a picture of growth, whose leaf does not wither. Often the process of growing older can lead to narrowness, to shrinkage. It's possible to grow older or become older and grow. Uh, the picture speaks of expansion and development, of growth. But there is another picture that is given in the psalm too. My original headings for the sermon were going to be Two trees, two paths, and two destinations. 
But as I studied the psalm, I realized that it doesn't describe two trees. It describes a person who is like an evergreen tree, and it describes a person who is like so much chaff. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. These folk aren't even described. All that the psalmist says of these people is this. Everything that is true of the righteous, that they are planted by streams of water, that they yield their fruit, that their leaves do not wither, and that whatever they do prospers, all of that is not so in the case of the wicked. In fact, the emphasis in these verses is not so much on the character of the wicked, but rather on their eventual fate. Harvesting grain in the ancient world was a two-step process. You would first thresh the grain by beating it or trampling on it to loosen the grain from its inedible protective layer, and then you would winnow the grain by throwing all of that into the air, and the heavy grain would fall to the floor, but the rest of the trampled material, the chaff, would simply blow away in the wind. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor in London in the 1800s, and he writes this about these verses. The righteous man carves his name upon the rock, but the wicked writes his remembrance in the sand. The righteous man ploughs the furrows of earth and sows a harvest here, which shall never be fully reaped till he enters the enjoyments of eternity. But as for the wicked... He ploughs the sea, and though there may seem to be a shining trail behind his keel, yet the wave shall pass over it, and the place that knew him shall know him no more forever. So that's the picture of an evergreen life, a life of purpose and meaning and stability and steadfastness, of fruitfulness and growth. But secondly, let's look at the path to this evergreen life. How do I get to being a person like this? Well, this path has two tracks, like a cart track through a field. There is disassociation from the wicked and association with God. Let's have a look at each in turn. Firstly, I can live an evergreen life by disassociation. Have a look again at verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. And a couple of things here. I think that these verses describe both the scope and the progressive nature of sin. Here's a man who is walking, then he's standing, and then he's sitting. If we wanted to take the imagery a bit further, we could say that he then lies down and then stops breathing. Walking in the counsel of the wicked means listening and acting on the advice of the wicked. And this seems to be a single momentary action. Standing in the way of sinners means more than just taking the path, but standing firm in it. The word way here refers to a manner of life. So it's more than just a single action. Now it is a habit. 
a lifestyle. And then sitting in the seat of mockers means not just living their way, but taking part in their deliberations and plans. It's a settled attitude of the heart, a new way of thinking and living, and passing on that new way of living to others. The British journalist and broadcaster Claire Rayner entitled her autobiography, How Did I Get Here From There? That's a very interesting question. None of us wake up one morning and think, today I'm going to become an alcoholic, or today I'm going to be unfaithful to my wife, or today I'm going to become a church dropout, or today I'm going to become a compulsive liar. We become those things through small individual choices taken over time. In fact, it's true to say that who we are is the sum of our choices. One writer puts it this way, When I was a younger man, I heard someone say that life is the accumulation of one's choices. Now I believe it. I see in myself good things and bad things that are the result of repeated choices over the days, weeks, months and years of my life. I quoted C.S. Lewis at the very beginning of our sermon series, and I think that what he says bears repeating. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either a creature that is in harmony with God and with others and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with others and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. That is why again and again the Bible urges us to flee from evil, to keep as far away from it as possible, to avoid even the appearance of evil. I heard about an eccentric millionaire who was looking for a new chauffeur, and so he called three men in for an interview, and he asked them, if we were driving up a mountain pass, how close could you drive us to the edge and still be safe? The first man said, I could drive within 20 centimetres of the cliff edge and you would be perfectly safe. The second man replied, I could drive you within 10 centimetres of the cliff edge and you would be perfectly safe. The third man said, Sir... I would drive you as far away from the cliff edge as possible. And the millionaire replied, you're hired. Perhaps when we are young, we think that that kind of thinking is a bit extreme and restrictive. But how many of us don't now have bitter regrets? We wish that we'd never taken the first step on a path that has brought harm to ourselves and others. I think, too, that these verses speak to us about the company that we keep. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, actually quoting a secular poet, says, Do not be misled. Bad company 
corrupts good character. A little earlier in the same letter, though, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. So as believers, we aren't called on to leave the world, but to be salt and light in the world. But it's a fine balance. How do we remain in the world without becoming like those in the world? Perhaps there are a couple of things that we should think through in our interactions with others. Number one, am I genuinely having an influence on this person? Or is this person having an influence on me? Number two, do I have a trusted friend that I can be accountable to and who will check up on me that I am being an influencer rather than an influencee? And number three, are there areas in my life where I am particularly vulnerable and therefore should avoid people with those same vulnerabilities? So, for example, there are some recovering alcoholics who are able to help others who are struggling with alcohol abuse. And then there are others who know that actually they can't help others because they themselves may be tempted back to an old way of life. And then just one final thought on this idea of disassociation. There are many things in our world that are beautiful. There are beautiful songs beautiful music, beautifully written books, beautiful movies. There is much beauty in our world, and I would say that beauty reflects God's beauty, whether the artist recognizes it or not. Disassociation doesn't mean that we only read Christian books and only watch Christian movies and only listen to Christian music, but we need to be careful that we retain a Christian worldview. If we spend long hours indiscriminately watching television or YouTube, we'll soon take on some of the values and priorities of the world. We need to be those who don't walk according to the advice of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Secondly, the path to an evergreen life involves not only disassociation from the wicked, it involves association with God. Have a look at verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, if we're honest, that doesn't sound like a great deal of fun, does it? Reading God's law day and night... And also as Christians, we may be wanting to say, isn't this unnecessary for us as New Testament believers? Wasn't the law for Old Testament believers? Haven't we been freed from the law? Well, just a couple of things in this regard. I think it's important to recognize the purpose of the Old Testament law, remembering in particular that Jesus said that he'd not come to abolish the law or the prophets. The whole of the Old Testament applies to us as believers but it applies to us in a particular way. We're not saved by obeying the law. Neither were the Israelites. God saved them out of Egypt first and then gave him his law. So the law doesn't save us. Rather, the law shows us our own sinfulness. 
And when we see our sinfulness, we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, who was the only one who did obey God's law perfectly. He lived a perfect life. He died the death I should have died for my sin, and and in exchange for my sinful life, he offers me his perfect life. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 3 when he says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But that doesn't mean that God's perfect law is now obsolete. Uh, Samuel Bolton was a British pastor who lived in the 1600s, and he put it like this. The law sends us to Christ so that we may be justified. And then Christ sends us back to the law that we may be sanctified, that we may work out what we should be doing as those who are justified. When the psalmist speaks about the law of the Lord, he's probably referring to just the first five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And yet how much richer and deeper is our understanding and experience of the law of the Lord? We have books like Matthew and Romans and Isaiah and Jeremiah, parts of the law of the Lord that the psalmist never read or had access to. And the psalmist tells us to meditate on God's law, on his word. Meditation here doesn't refer to some sort of Eastern chanting or even to emptying our minds of everything else. It's speaking about talking over the law, thinking about it through the day, chewing it over, either alone or with others. It's similar to what God says to the nation of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So meditating means thinking and considering and reasoning, engaging our minds when it comes to Scripture. But then we also need to engage our hearts too. It's possible for us to begin to enjoy reading and studying the Bible and finding things out about the Bible and getting insights into its history and grammar and theology without getting to know the person of God that is revealed in the Bible. Just coming back to the imagery of a tree that the psalmist uses in verse 3. The tree is strong and powerful and fruitful, but the only reason the tree is like that is because of its location. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. The tree isn't really strong in itself. It's strong because of an outward source. And there are a couple of wonderful parallels to this in John's Gospel. So, for example, in John chapter 7, we read that on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, 
as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. A little bit later in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. So putting all of this together, we can say that the law of the Lord, the scriptures in their entirety, they're not just a book to be studied, but a person to be enjoyed. When we begin to meet Jesus in the pages of scripture, then meditating on his law day and night does indeed become a delight. And then meditating on the word of God also means applying it to everyday life. Asking myself throughout the day, what does God's word say about this situation? What would obeying God's word mean in this place? This week I came across a quote by the biblical scholar Hans Frey, who pointed out the disturbing shift that has taken place in how we read the Bible. He said this, Once people read the scriptural story and sought to set their own story in its context. Since the 18th century, we are more inclined to set the scriptural story in the context of ours. It is our story that provides the criteria for deciding whether the scriptural story is true or relevant. We measure scripture's story by ours. An important question for us to consider is this. When last did the Bible contradict me? If I'm reading the Bible and all that I'm getting is that God loves me and accepts me and wants me to be happy and prosperous, then I'm not reading it right. When last did the Bible contradict me and change me? When last did I set the story of my life to the story of Scripture rather than setting Scripture to the story of my life? And then finally, under this point of associating with God, I think it's so significant that Psalm 1 is placed right at the beginning of a book that contains prayers and praise and worship. And I believe that God has done this for a very particular reason. We can only come to God in prayer and praise and worship after we've engaged him in his word. His word informs and transforms our prayers. Remember, we saw a few weeks ago that prayer is always answering speech. Prayer is always a second word. God always has the first word. There's so much more that we could say here, but let me exhort you with some words from John Eldridge, which I've shared with you before. He says this, If you create a little bit of sacred space every day to read God's word and pray, God will meet you there and you will begin to love it and you will begin to love him. So, the picture of an evergreen life, the path to an evergreen life. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the prosperity of an evergreen life. The psalm begins with the words, Blessed is the one who... 
And then in the last part of verse 3, we read, whatever that person does prospers. An evergreen life is a life of blessing and prosperity. But it's important to consider the nature of that prosperity. And once again, the context of Psalm 1 is so important. Psalm 1 is placed at the head, at the beginning of a book of prayers that actually come out of the experience of attack and fear and shame and isolation and of being abandoned by God. Just listen to a few of the cries from these psalms. Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Psalm 6, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Psalm 10, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? The people who wrote these psalms went through all sorts of terrible situations, But before any of those experiences are recorded for us, there is this promise in the very first psalm that the righteous are blessed and ultimately prosper. The promise is not that the righteous will be safe from affliction, but that the righteous will be safe in affliction. And that is the message of the rest of Scripture too. Sometimes God does deliver, does heal, does perform miracles, But sometimes the divorce goes through, the retrenchment happens, the child dies. And yet in all of those situations, we can be sure of the promise at the end of this psalm, verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Literally, the verse says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And the word know here speaks of the most intimate and personal knowledge. It's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 3. Adam knew his wife Eve, which was a euphemism for sexual intimacy. As one writer puts it then, God's knowing involves not only an objective knowledge about the righteous, but also a subjective relationship with them, assuring them that he cares for his own, protects them, and will reward them. God's knowledge, then, is a deep commitment to, love for, and care of his own. Those whose trust and faith and delight is in God are ultimately safe in the palm of his hand. But as we've already seen, those who do not place God at the centre of their lives those who place him on the very edge or ignore him altogether, while they may prosper in this life and look good for a while, will ultimately and eternally be lost. The last part of verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are those who ignore God their entire lives and keep pushing him away until eventually God has no choice but to give them what they want. 
As C.S. Lewis once put it, there are those who say to God in this life, Thy will be done. And those to whom in the end God has to say, Thy will be done. Psalm 1 is a conscious reflection on Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived and preached just before the nation of Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and took the people of Judah off into exile. It was a horrific time where God's people ignored him and so were punished by him. And yet, even in one of the worst moments in Israel's history, where there was war and famine and invasion and death and exile, there is this promise that those who trust God are ultimately safe, even in danger. Listen to the promise of God through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 17. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. As we go out into this new week, which may include all sorts of things, financial pressure, sickness, even death, we can be assured that ultimately we are safe with God. We will prosper if we are seeking to live evergreen lives by avoiding evil and placing God at the very centre of our lives, delighting in him and in his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you said, I have come that they may have life, life in all its fullness. And thank you that we can live a life with you right here and now that includes fruitfulness and strength and growth, that our lives can be a blessing to others. And thank you, too, that this life that we have with you can never be taken from us, that even death just opens a door into a fuller, eternal life with you. And so we ask that in this week that lies ahead, we would pursue a relationship with you, that you would help us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and allow us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you went through difficulties, even death itself, and so you know that we what we experience, and you promise that you'll be with us in that experience. And so we ask, please, that you would help us in this week that lies ahead. In your name. Amen.